You can turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Now, before I get started, I do need to give a little parental warning. Parents, if you have your kids in here or out in the floor, you need to know this morning, the topic is going to be sexual immorality. We will not be graphic, but it will be mature. We will be covering a number of subjects in 1 Corinthians 6 that that will be new for your kids if you've not yet talked to them about sex or immorality. So if you're not ready to have that conversation yet, uh, you you can exit while I'm praying or I'm reading uh, 1 Corinthians 6 here in a minute. But let me just warn you with a statistic, parents. Um, Today, most kids by fourth grade know more about sex and immorality than anything I will say this morning. So if you've got fourth graders and you haven't had the talk yet, set aside some time today. You need to have it. It's coming earlier and earlier. Okay, so let's look at the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Well, this morning's passage, as you see in in verse 13 and in verse 18, it's about immorality, and, and that word, it means sexual immorality. It's the word porneia in Greek. It refers, to be exact, to any form of sex outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. Now, that would include prostitution, which is the focus of this passage, because that was a big problem in the city of Corinth. But it's not limited to prostitution. It would also include sex before marriage and adultery and incest and homosexual behavior. All of those things would, would fit within this word porneia and and actually much of what Paul will talk about in this passage applies even beyond sexual sins that that involve the actual act of sex a lot that he says in here would also apply to lust and to pornography now most of those forms of sexual sin were common and accepted and even expected in first century Corinth as you look at at first century Corinth you find out really quickly they, they had no problem with prostitution it was legal And it was actually expected that men would engage in prostitution. Now, not women. It was not an equal rights kind of society. But it was expected that men would engage in prostitution both before and during marriage. That that was normal in in first century Corinth. Cicero, first century BC, he says, if there is anyone who thinks that youth should be forbidden affairs, his view is contrary. Not only to the license of this age, but also to the custom and concessions of our ancestors. For when was this not a common practice? When was it blamed when was it forbidden Plutarch one of his contemporaries actually argued that a husband is doing his wife a favor when he takes his sexual desires to a prostitute because then it's less work for the wife so so they actually viewed prostitution as normal and acceptable now now let's talk about today 
Well, in today's world, some things are different. Prostitution is illegal in our society, and adultery is frowned upon, actually, by by almost everyone. But sexual sin in general is becoming more and more accepted in our culture and our society. Gallup has conducted a poll every year for the last 10 years where they ask a variety of of Americans about lots of different activities and ask them, is that activity moral or immoral? And what Gallup has found is that over the last 10 years, Americans have come to accept sexual sin as more and more normal and expected and moral. So so here's some of the numbers. 2013 Gallup poll, most recent one, uh, looking at 18 to 34-year-olds, so that's most of you in this room. They found that 49% of you would approve of pornography as a moral thing. It's actually a much higher percentage if you just look at college-age students. 49% approve of pornography as moral, 72% approve of sex before marriage as moral, and 74% approve of homosexual behavior as a moral activity. Now, a lot of times when older generations, older Americans, see these numbers about what younger people think, they, they begin to, to complain and, and to bemoan the, the decline of morality in our country. But hold on just a minute, because Gallup found something else. The greatest increase in acceptance of all three of those behaviors, pornography, sex before marriage, and homosexual behavior, the greatest increase in support over the last 10 years came not from young Americans, but from the oldest Americans. The generation 55 and up is where the greatest change is happening as more and more embrace all of those activities as moral. So what all that means is that even though Paul was writing to first century Corinth, he might, have been writing, he might as well have been writing to us today. Because we live in a society that is very similar to theirs. Paul is writing to first century Corinthians and to 21st century Americans who live in a sex-saturated culture where sexual sin is accepted as normal and natural. He is writing to believers who are tempted to go with the flow of society and give in to sexual sin. And so Paul's goal here in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, what he's giving us is ammunition to fight temptation when it comes. That's what this passage is. It's ammunition to fight against sexual temptation. Paul is going to give us three reasons why we should say no to sexual sin giving us three reasons why the pleasure of sexual sin is never worth the cost. He's giving us these three reasons because he knows when temptation comes, you will give in if you do not have biblical truth to fight that temptation. Your desire for, for sex is just too strong. You can't fight it with good intentions alone. You need to have ammunition. You need to have biblical truth that you can, you can fight. You can quote against that temptation to remind yourself of why the pleasure of sexual sin is never worth the cost. So he's going us three reasons why we should say no to sexual sin. First reason why you should say no when you feel tempted is because sexual sin enslaves you. That's the point of verse 12. Paul begins verse 12 by quoting what appears to be a slogan 
that, that Corinthian believers were using to justify sexual sin, that statement, all things are lawful for me, you can put that in quotes. That, that's what they're saying to justify their sexual sin. Now, there is actually truth to that for believers, for those who've trusted in Jesus Christ, we have been set free or liberated from the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. That's what that slogan is getting at. You see that throughout the New Testament, that truth, Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you have trusted in Jesus as your savior, then you have been set free of the Mosaic law, the 10 commandments, all those regulations from Exodus to Deuteronomy. You're not under those anymore. You're you're not under the law. Jesus, through his death, has liberated you from the law. So that's true, but what the Corinthian believers have done is they've taken that truth and, and they've reasoned from it. Well, if I'm not under the law anymore, if I'm not beholden to the Mosaic law, then why not do whatever I want? If I'm already forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future, through the death of Jesus Christ, then why not sin all the more? Where sin increases, grace abounds. So let's live it up. Well, Paul doesn't refute the slogan because the slogan is true. What he does is he refutes the application. Because what Paul wants us to understand is even though we have been set free of the law, even though we have been liberated from the law, sin is still never a good idea. What Paul wants you to understand is that Jesus' death, even though it has removed the penalty of your sin, it has not removed the consequences. You live in a moral universe where actions have consequences. Righteous actions have profitable consequences. That's what Paul says in verse 12. When you do that which is right, it brings blessing into your life and in the lives of those around you. But sinful actions have the opposite effect. They bring pain and destruction into your life. And and the particular consequence that Paul wants to direct our attention to, sexual sin, the, the consequence it brings is mastery. Sexual sin builds habits that become addictions that enslave you. Now, that's true of all forms of sexual sin, but it's particularly true of pornography. There's a growing body of research that demonstrates conclusively that pornography works on the brain just like heroin or cocaine. You give into pornography over and over again, it will rewire the stimulus reward portion of your brain so that you become an addict just like a heroin addict. There's a 2007 study out of Germany that actually uses MRI imaging of of brain scans that show that repeated use of pornography makes the same anatomical change to your brain that repeated use of heroin does. Has the exact same effect. It makes an addict of you. So if you give in to sexual sin, particularly pornography, over and over again, it becomes a habit that grows into an addiction that begins to rule your life. You can't give it up. You need more of it. Just like a drug addict, you've got to have more and more for the same stimulation. And, and you have to have more severe, more explicit forms of it. In fact, you get to the point where, where you cannot engage in, in normal sex without pornography. There's, there's a lot of research about that too. That the world is, is becoming full of, of 20-year-old men who cannot perform in bed because they can't have sex without porn. Because they are totally addicted to pornography. When you give in to sexual sin repeatedly, it becomes a habit that grows into an addiction that rules your life. That's what Paul wants us to understand about sin. It has consequences. The fundamental mistake that these believers in Corinth had made, they were right that we're not under the law anymore, but they were wrong about the consequences of sin. They had minimized 
the destructiveness of sexual sin. They had not realized that even though Christ's death frees us from the penalty of sin, it does not free us from the inescapable consequences of sin. And if it's sexual sin, that always leads to habits that become addictions that ruin your life. That's where sexual sin unavoidably takes you. Now, some of you know that by experience. Many of you are young, and so you have grown up in a world that is always connected to the internet. As a result, pornography is never more than one click away for you. So for most of you, statistically speaking, we just look at the studies, statistically speaking, most of you were exposed to pornography for the first time in fourth grade. And when you were exposed at first, you didn't know what it was, but you, you saw that as you grew up and as you entered into puberty, you, you began to desire it more and more and more extreme forms of it. It started with swimsuit images and then nudity and then explicit videos. And after a while, you, you couldn't say no. You wanted to say no because it made you feel guilty, but you couldn't stop looking. Well, you are experiencing the reality of verse 12. When you give in to sin over and over again, it becomes your master. It becomes a habit. It becomes an addiction that you can't break. So all of these sins, pornography, sex before marriage, homosexual behavior, why does God say no to those? Why does he put those off limits? It's not because God is a prude. It's not because he's old-fashioned. It's not because he's a fuddy-duddy. It's not because he's mean. It's because he loves you too much to allow you to engage in something that will make a slave of you. God knows that sexual sin will make an addict of you and will destroy your life. That's why it's off limits. So say no to sexual sin because it will become a habit that grows into an addiction. Now, what do you do if it already has? What if you've given into sexual sin and it has grown into a habit and you just can't say no to it? Well, I will give you some practical instruction at the end of the sermon. There is hope. You can be healed. I'll get to that at the end. But first, I need to give you two more reasons why we should say no to sexual sin. Two more reasons in this passage why the pleasure of sexual sin is never worth the cost. So reason number two to say no to sexual sin. Sexual sin betrays Jesus. That, that's verse 13. It, it begins with another slogan that the Corinthians were using to justify sexual sin. Look at the beginning of verse 13. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. That, again, that should be in quotes. This is a slogan they were using to justify sexual sin, but it's about food. So what's going on? Well, why are they talking about food here? Well, what the Corinthian believers are doing is, is they are equating our appetite for food with our appetite for sex. They're the same. We have, we have this physical craving. And so let's look at food for a moment. You have a craving for food, and so you eat that food, and then a day later that food exits your body. I know that's kind of crude, but it's true. So, so food, it's temporary. And the organ of your body that, that enjoys that food, your stomach, it's, it's temporary too because you're going to die and your body's going to decay one day. And so they reason, well, because the food and the stomach must be temporary, well, therefore they must not be spiritual issues. There must not be any spiritual significance to the food you eat because it's temporary. And so if food is an amoral issue, it's not a moral issue at all, well then so therefore sex must also not be a moral issue because the craving of sex, that doesn't last long and in your body that enjoys sex, it's gonna die and decay as well. So sex is temporary just like food is temporary. So they're both not moral issues. They do not matter. They're insignificant. 
And so the Corinthians were using this idea to, to minimize the significance of the body. That's what it really gets to. That's, that's what they're doing. They're minimizing the significance of your physical body. It won't last. All of your cravings will pass. Your physical body will die and decay. They're using that fact to justify sexual sin. Since your body's not going to last, you can do whatever you want with it. Now, that's actually a common idea in Greek philosophy after Plato. They believed that the body was just a prison for your spirit. They did not believe in resurrection. So for them, death was a good thing because your, your body, the prison of your spirit, would die and decay and, and become food for, for worms and your spirit would be released to ascend into heaven. And so because the Greeks thought that, they, they began to draw this really hard and fast line between that which is spiritual and that which is physical. That which is spiritual, like religion and philosophy, that matters. They really cared about those things because those things last into eternity. But those things that are physical, like eating food and having sex, that's just your body. Your body's not going to last, so it doesn't matter at all. So the Greeks drew a hard and fast line between that which is spiritual, that which is physical, and the Corinthian believers adopted that same idea to excuse sexual sin. And, And so have many believers in America. So have many Christians in America. They draw this hard and fast line between that which is spiritual and that which is physical. They assume that God only cares about the spiritual part of your life, like going to church and praying and reading the Bible, but he doesn't care about what you do with your body. That's how they justify getting drunk and having sex on Friday night and then coming to church on Sunday morning and not feeling any guilt about it because God only cares about the spiritual, not the physical. Well, that's not true. Paul wants to correct that, that misunderstanding of the human body. And so uh, look with me, starting in verse 13. He wants us to understand that our bodies are neither insignificant nor temporary. Right after the slogan, he says, middle of verse 13, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own for you've been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. Paul gives us three reasons why God cares about our bodies and cares about what we do with our bodies. Reason number one why God cares about your body and what you do with it is because your body belongs to Jesus. He says in verse 13, your, your body is for the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. And, and the Lord is for the body. That means that your body was designed to be filled and empowered and directed by Jesus. And he tells us in verses 19 and 20 that we've been bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to Jesus. We are his. Your body belongs to Jesus. What Paul wants us to understand is that when Jesus died on the cross, when he shed his blood to purchase us from sin, he was buying you, body and soul, to be his forever. You now belong to Jesus. You are, in other words, his slave. That's not something we're really comfortable with. 21st century America, we don't like slavery at all. We celebrate our freedom and we fight against slavery whenever we see a human being enslaved by another human. We fight against that. And that's good. We should fight human slavery. But we need to recognize, we need to understand, every human being, spiritually speaking, is a slave of someone. It is not possible for human beings to be absolutely free. You you can't. You were born a slave. You will die a slave. Every human being who has ever lived is a slave either of sin or Jesus. 
Freedom is not an option available to you. You are a slave. You always will be, either of sin or Jesus. You can't choose freedom. All you can choose in life is which master you will serve. You get to choose, will you serve sin or will you serve Jesus? Jesus bought you with his own blood so that you belong to him, so you are called to serve Jesus, to follow him. Your body is not your body. I know that's a radical claim in this day and age. Your body doesn't belong to you. It's not yours, it's his. He gave his life to buy your body and your soul forever. And so you are required to use your body to glorify Jesus. It is never acceptable to use your body for sexual immorality, for something that Jesus hates because your body isn't yours, it's his. You must use it in a way that honors him. The first thing that Paul wants you to understand about your body is it belongs to Jesus now and forever. Second thing that Paul wants you to understand about your body is that it's eternal. Verse 14, you will be resurrected. The Greeks were wrong about the afterlife. Your body is not just food for worms. God is going to literally resurrect your physical body, rejoin it to your spirit so that you can serve and glorify Jesus for eternity. And so what we do with our body matters to God because your body is eternal. That's why the slogan in verse 13 is totally wrong. It's wrong both about sex and about food. Actually, biblically speaking, food is a moral issue. Because how you treat your body is a moral issue. It matters to God because your body is an eternal gift that he's given you. It matters to God what you eat. It matters to God who you have sex with. Because your body is his for all eternity. That's the second thing that Paul wants you to understand about your body. Third thing he wants you to understand about your body is that it is God's home on earth. Verse 19, your body is is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in an actual building called the temple. Now, God is omnipresent. He, he exists everywhere, but he causes his, his physical presence on earth to be focused. And so in the Old Testament, it was focused in the building called the temple, in the Holy of Holies, right in the middle of it, the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. But in the New Testament, God doesn't live in buildings. He doesn't live here in the church as some buildings. This building is insignificant to God. He lives in you. He lives in his people, in the hearts of his people. We are his temple on earth today. And so to to take God's temple, God's home, this body that belongs to Jesus now and forever, and to use it for sexual immorality, for something that God hates, that is by definition betrayal. It, It is rebellion. It is actually, biblically speaking, it is idolatry. This body is God's temple, it belongs to him. To use it for something he hates is absolutely inexcusable. So pornography and sex before marriage and homosexual behavior, they are not just physical activities, they are spiritually significant. It matters to God, it is rebellion against Jesus, against our Lord and Savior, when we use our bodies for sexual sin. That's the second reason to say no when you feel tempted to give in to sexual sin. Third reason that Paul gives us for saying no to sexual sin is that sexual sin damages you for life. Sexual sin damages you for life. Both in first century Corinth and in 21st century America, we tend to minimize the significance of the sex act. We, we take it to be just a biological activity that's designed to satisfy a hormonal craving. 
That's the idea, this, this thing that, that sex is not significant, that it's what all animals do, that it's no big deal. That's the attitude behind what you see on much of TV. TV shows like, like Friends or Two and a Half Men, where they're hooking up with somebody new every episode, and there's no consequences and there's no commitment. Yeah, because sex is no big deal to them. That's the attitude behind words like casual sex and hooking up. That sex could, you could have sex without any commitments, without any long-term effect. It's just a physical thing that you do for a moment. We live in a world that minimizes the significance of sex. We believe that sex is no big deal if you're bored, just find somebody to hook up with for the night. We live in a world where sex is not significant, but the Bible strongly disagrees. Paul would absolutely disagree with that idea about sex. Look with me starting in verse 16. He wants us to understand how how significant the act of sex is. He says, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Verse 16 is particularly important. Look at that, look at that quote at the end of verse 16. The two shall become one flesh. Where is that from? Where is he quoting from? It's Genesis chapter 2, when God invented marriage. The act of sex is how two people are bonded together for life as a new married couple. And so read the book of Genesis and what you will never find is a wedding ceremony. You didn't get married by a ceremony in the book of Genesis. You got married by having sex because that's what sex is. It is God's tool for two human beings to be bonded together for the rest of their lives. So we got to understand for human beings, sex is not just a physical activity. Sex is a spiritual and relational event that radically changes your identity by bonding you to the person that you're having sex with. Sex changes you for life. It is a spiritual and relational event that changes you at the core of your being. And so let's just be really clear with each other for just a moment. What this means when we look at the biblical definition of sex, it means there is no such thing as casual sex. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as as sex without strings attached because that's not what sex is. It is not just a physical, biological activity. It is emotional and spiritual and relational. It changes you at the core of your being. It changes your identity by bonding you for life to the person you're having sex with. That's simply what sex is. You can't change that. It doesn't matter if you enter into the activity of sex wanting nothing more than physical pleasure. You're gonna get more than you bargained for. Because sex affects you at the core of your being. I read this really interesting article in the Huffington Post this week. Not exactly a conservative news outlet. Extremely liberal, but every once in a while they'll have an incredible article. They had one by a woman named Lisa Dyerbeck who grew up in the 70s and 80s in New York City when it was just totally sexually liberated. Uh, She did not grow up in a religious home. She had no morals. And so she had sex with anyone. It was just a game for her. And now she's in her 40s and she's looking back and reflecting on on what all of that sex outside of marriage did to her. And here's what she concludes. She says, now in her 40s, I don't believe in casual sex. Even the phrase casual sex has a hollow ring that bothers me. It's a contradiction in terms. Where's the casual part? 
I've thrown casual dinner parties serving Chinese takeout on paper plates. I've worn casual clothes to plush offices on Fridays. But applied to relationships, casual is a code word for apathy. If someone says this is only physical, my translation is, I don't care about you. Forget casual, the more accurate word is heartless. She gets it. She gets it. Sex is never just a physical act. It is always emotional and spiritual and relational because you are bonding yourself as one flesh for life with the person that you're having sex with. So a person who wants to have sex with you, but make it only physical, just a one night stand, make no lifetime commitment with you. You gotta understand that person is heartless because what they wanna do is they wanna get with you and do something that will bond the two of you together for the rest of your life and then they just wanna walk away from that. That's heartless, that's cruel. That's what Paul is getting at in verse 18 when he tells us that that sexual immorality is unlike every other sin, is a sin against your own body. Well, there's, there's lots of sins that affect your body, like gluttony and drunkenness. They have an effect on your physical body. But with gluttony, you're not becoming one with food. And with drunkenness, you're not becoming one with alcohol. It is only sexual immorality that can change you at the core of your being. They can affect your identity for the rest of your life. That's why it is so significant. It's a sin like any other and the consequence it has on you as a person. That is why, men and women, there is no such thing as safe sex outside marriage. That whole concept of safe sex is all a lie. You can use a condom to protect yourself from disease and pregnancy. But that condom cannot protect your heart and soul and identity from the permanent damage you will inflict upon yourself by having sex outside of marriage. That is an innate part of sex. You cannot avoid it. You cannot prevent it. You cannot remove it after the fact. And so for those of you who are single, you're not married yet, but you would like to be married one day, You look forward to becoming one flesh with your spouse on your honeymoon night. Let me encourage you. Please do not ruin that one flesh relationship before it's even begun. You're going to damage it if you have premarital sex because what does premarital sex do? It bonds you together with the person you're having sex with and then on your honeymoon night, you're going to bring that relationship with you. You can't help it. That premarital sex, it changed you. It bound you to that other person. You're gonna walk into your honeymoon suite carrying baggage that you can never totally get rid of. Please save this significant thing called sex for your honeymoon night. Save it for the person you wanna commit the rest of your life to. Our society doesn't understand. Sex is incredibly powerful and incredibly significant. It changes you at the core of your being forever. That's why God calls us to say no to sexual sin. When temptation comes, when you feel tempted to give into sexual sin, you need to use these biblical truths as ammunition to fight back. Why should you say no when temptation comes? Because sexual sin enslaves you. It always does. It always builds habits that turn into addictions. Say no because sexual sin betrays Jesus. It is rebellion against him. Say no because sexual sin, it damages you for life. It affects you at the core of your being in ways that are inescapable. Now, some of you, you look at that list, you you read these reasons why we should say no to sexual sin, and it makes you feel incredibly guilty. 
Right now you are feeling ashamed. You are feeling regret because you failed. You've given in in the past. And so this morning, if you are feeling guilty or ashamed or feeling regret, I want you to know three things. First of all, you are not alone. Satan will try to make you feel alone. He will try to convince you that no good Christian would ever do what you just did. But that's a lie. Many, if not most, good Christians in this room have given in to sexual sin at some point in their lives in some form or another. We have almost all of us given in to this sin at some point. So you are not alone. You're not alone at all. It's the first thing I want you to know. Second thing that I want you to know if you're feeling guilty is that you are not beyond God's love and forgiveness. Yes, sexual sin is heavy. It carries heavy consequences, but it is not some special class of sin that makes you more guilty in God's sight than other sins. John 3, 16, when it says, for God so loved the world, it means the whole world, all people without exception, including prostitutes and fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals. God loves all and Jesus died for all. For all people and for all sin, when he hung on the cross, he took all sins, past, present, and future, including sexual sin, upon himself and died to pay the penalty for all of that sin. There is no sin that you could commit that would put you outside the reach of the cross of Jesus Christ. He died for all sin so that God can offer to all people forgiveness as an absolutely free gift. You do not have to earn God's love. You don't have to earn his forgiveness. You don't have to earn eternal life. It's yours for free if you will simply accept it in faith. If you will simply say, God, I believe that you love me so much that you sent your son Jesus to die for my sins and rise from the dead so that I could be forgiven and have eternal life. The moment that you believe that, you are washed white as snow. You will never be judged by God for your sins. You're forgiven. Now, for those of you who have believed the gospel, you've trusted in Jesus as your savior, what you need to know right now, if you're feeling guilty, you need to know that you're not guilty. You need to know that you have been forgiven, that you have been cleansed by the loving grace of God. He has washed all of your sins away. So when you sin, what you need to do is confess it to God. That's just acknowledging it to God and then let it go. You don't need to keep confessing it. You don't need to keep feeling bad about it over and over again. Jesus died for that sin so that you could be forgiven of that sin forever. And so the second thing I want you to know is that you are not beyond God's love and forgiveness. Third thing is you can be healed and delivered from sin. You can be healed and delivered today. Our sins, especially our sexual sins, they leave scars on us that will last until the resurrection, but, but those scars don't have to hurt anymore. The scars don't have to weigh down on you and and on your marriage. You can be healed, you can be delivered, you can be cleansed from your sins in the past and you can be delivered from future sin. Just because you gave in yesterday doesn't mean you have to give in today because you have God living in you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you right now and he's stronger than any temptation. So for believers, sexual sin is never inevitable. No matter how badly you've done in the past, you can have purity in the future. Every day is a fresh start for a child of God. So God can can heal you of past sin and deliver you from future sin. What you must do to have that healing and deliverance is first of all, you must fill your mind with God's truth. When sexual temptation comes, you will give in if you're relying only on good intentions. The desire for sex is just too strong in us. You, You will give in unless you fill your mind with truth. Let's you fill your mind with God's word so that you can use it as ammunition to fight back. And so I want to encourage you very practically this week, memorize these three reasons 
from 1 Corinthians 6 why we should say no to sexual sin. Memorize those three reasons so that when temptation comes, you can quote those reasons to temptation to give you strength. So memorize those three reasons. And the second thing I want you to do this week is I want you to memorize 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. So mark it right there in your Bible, verses 18 through 20. Memorize those three verses so that when you feel tempted, you can quote the word of God to that temptation that will give you strength to fight back. If you will fill your mind with God's truth, it will help you to say no when temptation comes knocking. The first thing I want you to do is fill your mind with God's truth. Second, get help from God's people. God works in our lives through other people. So for every one of us, we need to have accountability. Accountability is having a relationship with a mature believer of the same gender who you can confess your sins to, you can pray with, they can help you and encourage you and and confront you when you sin. Every single one of us in this room needs to have an accountability partner who is holding us accountable to walk with the Lord. Now, if if you're all the way to the point where you are struggling now with a habit or an addiction, what I want to encourage you to do, if, if you're just finding it impossible to say no to sexual sin, I want you to come out to Southwood on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. for Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery is our ministry to help people who are struggling with hang-ups and habits that they can't break. Meets every week on Tuesday night right here at Southwood at 7 p.m. Confidential groups where you can find help and healing and support as you try to overcome that addiction in your life. So come out to Celebrate Recovery Tuesday night, 7 p.m. here at Southwood. And then third, if you just don't know what to do, if you're just being owned by this sin, I wanna invite you. Come talk to a pastor or an elder or small group leader or a counselor here at Grace Bible Church. We will help you. We'll give you some practical advice to begin to put your life in order so that you can find hope and healing. God has called us to pursue purity in an impure world. It's incredibly hard incredibly difficult to walk in purity. And so when you feel temptation come, I want you to remind yourself, the pleasures of sin are never worth the cost. If you give in, it will grow into a habit that becomes an addiction. If you give in, you are betraying your Lord and Savior. If you give in, you are doing damage to yourself that will last for the rest of your life. Remember the cost of sexual sin. Let's pray for God's help to do so. Father, we pray. We pray that you would meet us in this place, that you would fill us with your love and your forgiveness, that you would help us to believe that we are forgiven because Jesus died for us. Thank you so much that you have given us grace. What we deserve is your wrath. We deserve death because of our sin and instead you've given us your son. Thank you that he died on the cross for all of our sins, even the really ugly ones, the shameful ones that we'll tell no one about. Thank you that he died to pay the price for every sin that we've ever committed or will ever commit. Thank you that we have forgiveness once and for all in Jesus Christ. We pray for any person in this room who hasn't yet found that forgiveness who's still trying to earn your love or somehow work for for eternal life, we pray that, that you would help them to see that it is a free gift that Jesus earned for them. Please help them to believe. For all of us who've trusted in Christ, we pray that you would work in our lives to help us to walk in purity, to help us to honor you with our behavior. I pray, Father, that when temptation comes, that we would remember your word, that we would remember the costs of giving in, that we would encourage one another and strengthen one another and together, hand in hand, walk in purity so that we might please Jesus Christ with our bodies.
I pray that everything that we do would glorify your son. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week for 1 Corinthians 7.